Um, today, as we move through the Bible, um, we're going to look or do an overview, really, uh, of the book of Ezekiel. So let's open in prayer, and we will look at the ministry of the Lord through this man, um, which is uh, quite interesting. But uh, let us go before the Lord and thank him for this beautiful day. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so greatly um, for that which we share in common, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ, which provides us um, access to your throne of grace. And we thank you for salvation. We thank you for uh, the church and our gathering together and the privilege and wonder that it is. As we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, may we understand something this morning of the ministry of Ezekiel and that which you were doing through this man, that which was being proclaimed to a people who had wandered so far from their relationship with you. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to apply these glorious truths to our own lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ezekiel. Well, it's always been named um, for its author, who, by the way, is nowhere else mentioned in Scripture. It's interesting. His name means strengthened by God, and that makes perfect sense when you see something of the ministry of this man um, and the strength that he needed uh, to proclaim the message of God to a very, a very foul people. He was born into a priestly family, so therefore it was intended for him to uh, become a priest, but at the age of 30, um, God interrupts that occupation and calls him into or consecrates him and calls him into the role um, of prophet. And as you read Ezekiel, you see that God makes use of of visions, of parables, of signs, of symbols. You'll see much apocalyptic language um, in the book of Ezekiel. And he's speaking these these messages to an exiled people. The people of God, uh, carried away by the Babylonians. Babylonians came in and conquered the Jewish nation, uh, bringing a select group from their land, pulling them away from their traditions into a foreign land to serve a foreign people. This is the judgment of God. This is the chastening of God. And not unlike many of us, In such a situation as this, uh, as humans, we raise the question, how could God allow this to happen? Amen? How could he allow this? So as we read Ezekiel and we read books like Daniel, which uh, were written to a people who were in captivity, wondering that very thing. I mean, has God abandoned us? How could this happen? So Ezekiel, like Daniel, is a prophet of the exile to those that were taken into captivity. And Daniel, as you know, was placed in a very high position. He was given a very unique ability to see behind the veil, so to speak, in that uh, he would see the perspective of this powerful Babylonian nation um, rising up. He was given the ability to uh, interpret dreams and such. And he was enabled to see the development of a mighty kingdom, but yet 
In contrast to that mighty kingdom, he sees the victory and the power and the eternality of God's kingdom compared to these world powers, which is quite amazing. So all the while predicting in apocalyptic language the indestructible power of the glory of God's kingdom, which overcomes all powers of the world. Now, Ezekiel, on the other hand, um, was appointed as a watcher, a watcher over this exiled nation, um, continuing the work of earlier prophets such as Jeremiah. And what's interesting, beloved, is we look at these different men like Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. They're very different, and God uses them in very different ways. But nevertheless, the message is the same, consistent throughout. God is king. God is on the throne. God is to be worshipped. And a people who allow themselves to worship anything other than God will be chastened. So Ezekiel sees the glory of God. Below his waist is fire, and above is a hard-to-describe brightness that is so bright and so compelling that we are reduced to using verbiage uh, that provides very vague descriptions of the glory of God. After all, how on earth can you describe the glory of God? Amen? And this is what this man sees over and over again. So from the vantage point of Ezekiel, uh, we see the glory and the magnificence of God by way of four visions. In the first vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of God in the presence of an idol. In the presence of an idol. In the second vision, Ezekiel sees 70 elders. They're secluded and private, but they're worshiping all manner of created things, and they're not worshiping Almighty God. That's vision two. What did Kelvin say? That the heart of man is a what? What kind of factory? An idol factory. These elders do not behold the glory of God. Elders, these spiritual leaders, they actually at this point in time feel forsaken by God. Carried away, they wring their hands, how could this happen? But all the while they're worshiping idols and they continue to do so. You know, we, can t- we, we tend to think, don't we, just like these people, that God sees what we see and he sees like we see, therefore we feel deserted when we're under his chastening hand. That he's deserted us. And that is so far from the truth. Amen? So far from the truth. He never deserts his people. He never will desert his people. That's vision number two. Vision number three, Ezekiel sees weeping women uh, being carried away in idolatry. And then in the fourth vision, Ezekiel sees 25 men worshiping the sun and their backs are turned to God. This is what caused God to move, or God in his providence used this kind of idolatry to carry this people away into exile, and yet they continue. So this is an act of bold defiance. And it really suggests that that God is irrelevant, irrelevant in their minds. 
And the abominations grow more intense with each scene. So God is showing them here this this overwhelming, all-encompassing corruption. The the, the entire religious system of Israel is in shambles from Joe Public to the elders, to the, the men, the women, the priests. They're all unified in bowing down to idols. So God says to Ezekiel, I want you to turn, turn now, turn and see. And if you notice in Ezekiel 8, verse 6, you look there quickly and then we'll go back to the beginning of the book. But notice, he says, son of man, verse 6, Ezekiel 8, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here. Notice what he said, to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. Now, the power, beloved, of this text will be lost if we think that this is just an Old Testament story. Or that the problem of idolatry is merely an Old Testament um, situation. An Old Testament problem. Because what we see throughout the Bible is that there is a connection between holiness and the glory of God. Where holiness is abandoned, God abandons. He pulls away. There's two-lane traffic, so to speak. Abominations in, glory of God what? Out. Now, a lot of people argue, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. You know, it's under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that these things, the things don't happen. Read the book of Revelation and the seven letters to the seven churches. Amen? Jesus warned the church at Ephesus, repent or I will remove what? The lampstand. The light. Jesus says, without holiness, no man shall see what? Shall see God. Terrifying words, really. So here then is Ezekiel. And one of Ezekiel's roles was to provide a a theodicy. Theodicy is an attempt to define um, God's purposes for judgment. To explain, you know, during this dark period of time, why it is that God is doing what he's doing. And ten years ago to this, ten years ago, in a week from now, People were asking that question. It was a few days after the 11th, but 10 years ago, Sunday, following that Tuesday, churches, beloved, were jam-packed. You could not find a seat. Do you remember that, anybody? They wanted to know why. What's going on? What is happening? That following Wednesday, churches packed. Month by month, let alone one year or two after 9-11, certainly God saved people from that who came under the preaching of the word of God and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. But what happened to all the people? This place would be packed today. People wanting answers to their questions, right? So here's Ezekiel. His role is to provide this theodicy, the purposes of God's judgment. So before we get to that, let's look at the man's call. Let's look at the man's call. Chapter 2. Is there, is there like a bass on back here or something, Craig, that's kind of pounding? A 
Okay, notice, beloved, uh, let's look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's Ezekiel's call. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations, uh, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So here then, Ezekiel sees a chariot throne of Almighty God. He sees a vision of God's mobile throne of judgment, a chariot of fire moving about rapidly, which represents the glory of God's presence. And this man is just swept up into this vision. Ezekiel falls the only place that any man can fall, and that is on his face. And God refers to him here as son of man. The message he receives is a message of judgment to a rebellious people. And that is that this captivity is the providential judgment of Almighty God because of their rebellion. Remember what the, remember what the Lord announced through Moses as they were preparing to enter into the promised land? Now, Moses never made it there, at least then. We see him standing there with Jesus in Matthew 17, so obviously he made it in, and he obviously makes it into the ultimate promised land, that is the presence of the glorified Lamb, Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, prior to Israel entering into the promised land, they were warned that if they were to persistently transgress the laws of God, his commands, that he would not only chastise them with heavy punishment, but would also uh, drive them out of the land and into the hand of foreign nations. You remember that? You can read that in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. But here then, this promise is being fulfilled. And he's, he's given a scroll. It's a sealed scroll, which reminds us of the sealed scroll um, in Revelation. And who was worthy to open that scroll, beloved? Nobody except the Lamb, the worthy Lamb of God. And the vision given to Ezekiel is much like that of Revelation. Um, if, if you read through it, you just do a cursory look, you'll, you'll see that there's a lot of apocalyptic language just like that in, in the book of Revelation. So we see uh, this mysterious literature uh, written in a format known as apocalyptic. Uh, it's very symbolic. 
So he's, he's instructed here to eat this scroll. John was instructed to eat a scroll. And it's filled with words of lamentation, of mourning, and woe. And then notice in chapter 3, he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth is sweet, is honey. So here then we see that God wants his word to be both ingested and digested. Because his prophet has quite a call before him. He wants the word to permeate his entire body, his entire being, for the task at hand. Not a casual reading, but ingested and and digested. And it says it's sweet as honey. So if it's words of lamentation, words of woe, words of judgment, but it's sweet, why is it sweet if the message is so sour? Why? It's from God. It's the word of God. So here this prophet eats this scroll. It's sweet sweet as honey in his mouth though it's filled with, with judgment. In Ezekiel, he's obedient to the command. God is now setting him as watchman for Israel, and he'll pro- he's going to proclaim this phrase, this following phrase, 67 times I counted. 67 times throughout the book of Ezekiel, he says this, Then they shall know that I am the Lord, or, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. The main theme throughout the book. Like Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Now it's been pointed out that that is one of the most often misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And I agree. Because we often think that being still before God is to remain silent to be quiet, to be still. But as R.C. Sproul has pointed out, he says it would be better translated in English as follows. Shut up. Hold your mouth. Stop complaining. Be quiet and know who God is. That's the message that Ezekiel is to proclaim. Shut up. Stop. Know Yahweh. He's holy. So he's going to take this message out. And it's a hard message because it's going to be proclaimed to a hard-hearted people. But what's interesting about the Lord when he calls a man to preach to a hard-hearted people, he prepares the man for the task. Amen? He prepares the man for the task. Ezekiel 3, look at verse 4. He said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. 
Not to many peoples a foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they, the foreigners, who were not raised up in the truth, such as yourselves, they would listen to you. Isn't that interesting? They would listen. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have, have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face, notice now, I'm preparing them for the ministry, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear, Brother, preach it regardless of what they say or do. Preach it. Preach it, brethren. Preach it to your friends, preach it to your family, preach it to your co-workers, preach it to your neighbors, preach the truth, preach the gospel, preach the love and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who bore the wrath, the one who took the shame. Preach it. Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat there, or I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. Overwhelmed. So here we see that the glory of God is central to Ezekiel. It appears numerous times. So, despite God's kindness, we see graphic descriptions of disobedience through Jerusalem, through Israel and Judah. So it shows for us God's desire for Israel to bear fruit, which he can bless. But selfish selfish indulgence here had left Judah ready for judgment. And chapter 15 says it's just like, like a torched vine. A torched vine. Made useless. Now, there, as you read through, there are many references... Um, to Israel's idolatry, the consequences thereof, um, such as uh, Pelatiah, who, who drops dead in chapter 11, verse 13. Okay? It's a real person who literally drops dead, but yet is a symbolic illustration of the overall disaster of these God's people. We see the prophecies of Jerusalem's ruin in chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 24, verse 27. The first set of prophecies are uh, uh, completed with the announcement uh, by God that the king of Babylon has begun his final siege against them. And at the same time this happened, Ezekiel's wife dies. 
His wife dies in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of proclaiming this truth, in the midst of proclaiming and heralding this judgment. His wife dies, and then he's instructed not to mourn for her. Notice chapter 24, if you will. See, all these interesting um, scenarios, real-life events that God uses as an illustration for the people in exile. Verse 16, chapter 24. The word of the Lord came to me. He says, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at the evening my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as was commanded. Can you imagine that? I cannot imagine that. This is to serve is a sign to the exiles that they were not to mourn for the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Their mother city. This was to serve for them to know that God is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He's Almighty God. He's their God. Chapter 24, we see verse 24. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and their daughters. Now, when we get to chapter 25, all the way to verse uh, 32 of chapter 32, um, God provides prophecies of judgment against, now to get this, against other nations that rejoiced in the destruction of Judah. For instance, you read, uh, what is it, Obadiah? You read of God's judgment, God's providential judgment on his people, right? God stirs this up and God actually sets other nations against his people to chasten them. And in the midst of it, God's people are trying to escape the persecution from these foreigners. And then you have the Edomites, right? Are saying, hey, there goes one, there goes one, pointing out those that are escaping, and then God judged Edom for that. It's amazing. God's providence, God's sovereignty is amazing. It's so mysterious. It just shows you human responsibility on, a, on the individual level, amen? Even though he is sovereign and providentially holds everything and everyone in his hand. So there's this judgment, uh, this prophecy rather of judgments against uh, other nations that rejoiced in the destruction of Judah. This would have been an encouragement for the exiles too, if you think about it. Why is that? Encouragement for the exiles that God's going to judge the nations that rejoiced in their persecution. Why? For the fulfillment of what overall covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. That God has a one people. He's always had one people. 
We're going to see in chapter 33, we see God's provision for Israel's repentance. Again, repentance is because of God's grace alone. Amen. In chapter 34 to uh, chapter 48, we see uh, prophecies of Israel's restoration. So yes, the judgment of God came. And yes, it was long. Yes, it was hard. He he calls a man out. But yet through it all, he's going to restore the leadership. Chapter 34. He's going to restore the land. Chapters 35 and 36. And the exiles will return. And it says in chapter 36, verses 8 through 10, that, that God will cause the land to be fertile. Verse 8. You, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches. There's a tongue twister. Shall shoot forth your your branches. And yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you. Did you get that? Is God for you? Okay, you, his people. Is he for you? Is he for you when you're down? Is he for you when you doubt? Is he for you when you sin? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. You're all nodding your heads yes, and you are at, we are absolutely. Yes. When he chastens you, is he for you? Yes, that's why he chastens you, because he's for you. Behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. God tears down and he builds back up. He breaks us down, he builds us up. That's sanctification. He chips us away and makes us stronger. You break a bone, it mends stronger than it was in the first place. So the monarchy will be restored, and after the restoration of the monarchy, there's restoration of the land, but the people themselves need to be restored. Amen? So this restoration is more than just a return of the people from exile. This is much deeper than that. This is an actual cleansing of the people. Look at verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Notice, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. He doesn't say cleanse yourself. He says, I will cleanse you. But will that alone prevent a people from turning back to idols again? To their rebellious and idolatrous ways? Answer is no, it will not. Therefore, God promises to do something even more than this. Not just to cleanse them, but verse 26, notice. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful 
to obey my rules. God's work of restoration, amen? He doesn't say produce within you a new heart. I will produce within you a new heart. I will give you my spirit. I will cause you to walk in my ways. So he will bring his people back. He chastens them. He restores the monarchy. He restores the people. He restores the land. And then he does a work in the people uh, that is supernatural. And then this, of course, is followed in chapter 37, one favorite chapter in all of Ezekiel, with the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And many scholars believe that Ezekiel is looking over the Kidron Valley. That God's going to take the dead and cause life to be wrought within them. Look at the vision. The hand of the Lord was upon me, chapter 37, verse 1. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, Can these bones live? How do you answer that question? How can you possibly answer that question? Just like Ezekiel does. Lord God, you know. Only you know, Lord. So here you have a valley filled with sun-bleached skeletal remains lifelessness, a picture of, of thousands and thousands of long dead people. That's the vision. What can a dead man do? Nothing. What can skeletal remains do? Can they get up and dance? Can they get up and walk? They can do nothing. But lie there and be bleached in the sun. Lord, only you know if they can live. So he says, look, go preach to them. It's one thing to preach to dead people, right? Like, uh, I remember did a funeral once. I was asked to do a funeral on a number of occasions. But many times, like this one lady asked me to perform a, uh, a memorial service for her father, who was a hardcore unbeliever. And she said, as far as I know, I think I'm the only Christian here. Would you please preach the gospel? The place was packed. It was standing room only. The guy was a very popular guy. So you have open mic time. And you've got to hear all these stories and all these weird ideas about spirituality and you know why this person is in a better place. And you hear all this um, heresy, basically. False ideals, false gospels. And then you have to get up and preach to dead people. And that is one time there was a back door. I think I might have mentioned the story, but there was this old lady falling asleep playing the organ behind the curtain. And uh, she literally was dozing off. So I could really sense hostility within the people. There was bikers there, like real bikers, you know. The uh, stereotypical biker image was there. All kinds of folks there. 
And I said, wow, for me to go out the front door, I'm going to have to squeeze through all these hostile-looking people. So I simply, when I was done, I, I shook the hands of the family in the front row. I hugged the gal who invited me um, to speak. And I stuck my head in the curtain. I said, ma'am, that door right there, where does that go? She goes, it goes out in the parking lot. And I asked if I could pass through the door. And I did. And uh, if you can escape it, escape it, right? So I did, because I had just finished preaching to a room of dead people, for the mo- as far as I could tell, the majority of them, and you can see it. Hostile, antagonistic looks. Especially when you have to correct the false ideals that were shared at the microphone. I didn't point the person out and say, you know, when that person said this, she's dead wrong. But in a general sense, right? Think of that, comp- compare that to Ezekiel. Preach to these dead, sun-bleached bones. Can they live, Ezekiel? Lord, only you know. Can my Uncle Bob be saved? I don't think so. No, the, the, the answer is, Lord, only you know. Can my own mother or father who's hostile towards Christ, therefore hostile to me, can she be saved? Can he be saved? God, only you know. Preach to them, brother or son. Verse 5, Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, here again, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, tendons. I will cause flesh to come upon you, to cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know, here it is again, you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as was commanded. This is what God said. That's what I said. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. This is beautiful. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Did you get that? The whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This is the whole house of Israel. So the prophecy ends with God promising that he will not leave his people in exile. He did not leave you in exile. You were dead. I was dead. He called forth his own by name. Dead skeletal remains, dried out by the sun. He caused sinews to be wrapped around those bones. He caused flesh to come upon those bones and sinews. He breathed life into you. You stood and you followed. So this prophet looks at a yet future time when these Israelites will be brought to faith by the sovereign, almighty God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. 
This is the ultimate end. This picture is the ultimate end of captivity and the ultimate power of regeneration. This is a new covenantal promise. I believe that what Jesus was referring to when he spoke with Nicodemus who came to him by night and said, surely God must be with you for no one can do the things that you do lest God be with him. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless a man be born again from above, he cannot perceive, he cannot receive, he cannot enter into the kingdom. Then he talks about being cleansed, being purified, being washed. What else can that be? but this glorious promise of God through the prophet Ezekiel. And Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, he went on to ask Nicodemus, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Life arrived 2,000 years ago. The life arrived 2,000 years ago who would complete the work, who would accomplish that which the Father had established in eternity past, that his glorious, perfect, holy law would be upheld, that it must be upheld, that a perfect, glorious, holy sacrifice must be laid down in order for a sinful, rebellious people to have life, to get up and to walk to be caused to walk in his ways. That's us. You are a true Israelite. Anyone in Christ is true Israel because of the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. Ultimate captivity ended. Ultimate regeneration given life in and through all who are in Christ That's the overarching picture, beloved. Amen? That's the glorious truth of the gospel revealed from Genesis to Revelation. That's the purpose of the prophets. What did Jesus say to the two walking on the road? To Emmaus, wondering about all these things, wondering about that which took place with this great man, Jesus of Nazareth, wringing their hands, pulling their hair. How could it be all his promises and now he's dead? Jesus meets them on the road. What are these things you're discussing among yourselves? What, are you the only one in in Jerusalem who does not know this Jesus and all that has occurred? And what did Jesus do, beloved? From Moses and the prophets began to explain what? All these things that pertain to who? To him king, the Lord, the lawgiver, the law fulfillment, the ultimate sacrifice, and the only reason that anyone can be regenerated and given life like this. Amen? That's the whole picture of the whole Bible. It all points to him. It all points back to him. Amen? Amen. 45 minutes on the dot. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time again. I pray that you'll prepare our hearts now. As we enter into corporate worship, prepare us, Lord, as we 
come to the table this morning um, looking at the height of the glorious law and seeing that it is not merely a, a legal outward ambition because we know that the the letter kills but the spirit gives life help us to see by the text this morning that uh, there's no place we can go or hide that you did not see or know intimately and Lord as much conviction as there may be today by the text that we'll look at may we see that which abounds even more greatly than our own sins and our own failure And that is the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, which enables us to be pure in heart. Which enables us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Thank you for the ministry of Ezekiel. Thank you for the ministry of Jeremiah. Thank you for the ministry of Isaiah. Thank you for the men that stood here the last couple, three weeks and shared those truths with the body. May they benefit us for your glory the good of your people to be built up in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.